Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 27, 2016. The share ID for Friday, March 25th is 8606. That's 8606. This morning, A Vision for You presents Chapter 2, There is a Solution. Most of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the demoralization, frustration, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We come to OA looking for a solution which will free us from the bondage, the pain, the suffering of our affliction. Chapter 2, There is a Solution, brings into sharp focus the exact nature of our powerlessness over the merciless obsession, our lack of defense against the first bite. This morning, we will learn what the solution is to our seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. We will learn that there is help, there is hope, there is a way out. Joining us this morning is Kim G., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Kim is dedicated to living in the solution of the 12-step way of life, which includes intensively working with others. And we're so pleased to have Kim on the line this morning. Welcome. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim G., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. And I'm really going to dig into this chapter, so I hope you guys have your big books with you. Um, just so those of you maybe have heard me in the line but don't know, I, I've been in OA since 1994. Um, however, I've only been recovered since 2011, and why is that? You know, unfortunately, this is my experience. I treated OA as a diet program with group support. I really thought this 12-step program was more about tools than it was about the steps. But the big thing was I never really knew what I suffered from. And therefore, I wasn't willing to do the work that was necessary to recover from this disease. You know, and I used to blame OA for that. I used to say, well, the message wasn't in the rooms, which I have to say is true in many cases. But a lot of it is that I'm queen of the loopholes. If anyone was telling me the truth, I would ignore them for the person that told me that three meetings a week and three phone calls a day would do it because I'm looking to do the least amount of work possible. So what we're going to do today is I'm hoping to really clarify what we suffer from so that you understand the necessity, the urgency to work the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. You know, for many years, I was in, in the program for 17 years prior to being really exposed to this big book, and I did have six years of back-to-back accidents. But I have to tell you, it was, I felt every minute of it. It was white-knuckled. It was painful. I went to bed exhausted every night with the only thought being, thank you, I thank you, God, I beat the food today. You know, when I came to what I call my spiritual bottom five years, a little over five years ago, and I decided that I was going to treat this big book as a textbook, and whatever the book told me to do, I was going to do, and I had a spiritual awakening as a result of doing these steps, I have had over five years of effortless abstinence. Now, I worked the steps really hard. Just as Leah said, I live in the solution today, and because of that, I do not want my binge foods, so I am not fighting it. I am not cocky or afraid. The obsession has been removed. But I have to understand what I'm suffering from in order to do that. 
So before we get into the chapter, I just want to talk about how the big book is laid out. Because we often, you know, people will say, well, where is step one? You know, in, in, the, in the OA 12 and 12 or the AA 12 and 12, it seems simpler. Chapter one is step one. Chapter two is step two. But I have to tell you, in the OA 12 and 12 and the AA 12 and 12, there's actually no instructions about the steps. It's simply people's reflections on the steps. Where we work the steps is in this big book. So the first chapter, the doctor's opinion, is, is um, and all step one is, is a conclusion. So these chapters are going to help us come to the conclusion that we are compulsive overeaters. So in the doctor's opinion, we get our medical diagnosis, allergies of the body, obsession of the mind. Quite simply, is I can't eat my binge food safely, and I can't be abstinent contently. And in Bill's story, we identify in with that progression of the illness. I was instructed in those first eight pages to think, do I drink like Bill, do I eat like Bill drank, do I feel like Bill felt, and do I think like Bill sank? And do I identify in with the progression of the illness, going from fun and excitement to necessity to oblivion? And then we come to this chapter, there is a solution. Because I have to tell you, a big part of knowing who I am is knowing who I am not. So 17 to 24 is going to try to ferret out any of those delusions that we are like other people. And then more about alcoholism is really about what our life will be like if we only treat the allergy. What's it like to suffer in abstinence? I remember reading a meme on Facebook a couple weeks ago, and it says, I knew I was an alcoholic by how I felt sober. And that so hit me true. More about alcoholism is not about people who are drunk and can't get sober. It's about people who are sober and make that insane decision to get drunk. And once we get through those chapters, hopefully there's no lurking notions, no reservations of any kind, that we are a compulsive overeater. And that's going to lead us to step two. It's going to propel us to step two in our powerlessness. So let's go to page 17. And even in that first paragraph, we find some hope in here. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problems. So this is in past tense. This is not people who are suffering from alcoholism trying to tell me how to get out. These are people who have escaped alcoholism and are telling us how they did it. That's really important. Like, I need to find someone in whom the problem has been solved. For many years, what I would do is look to people who were still suffering, people who couldn't get abstinent and stay abstinent. It was common in my area as you would pair up with someone and whoever was abstinent was a sponsor. So I would be the sponsor if I was abstinent, I would pick up and that other person would be abstinent and they would be the sponsor. I need someone in whom the problem has been solved, and part of that is understanding what the problem is. So we're going to go to page 19 now. There's that first paragraph that says, none of us makes a sole vocation of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. Here's the sentence I want to stress. We feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. You know, we are told four times in the doctor's opinion, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached. Of course an alcoholic ought to be free from his physical you know, substance. And two other times when it gives examples of people that have recovered, it says following their physical rehabilitation. In, in Bill's story on page 13, it says, I, I put myself in the hospital and I was separated from alcohol for the last time, and then he works the steps. 
It's so essential for us to understand that we cannot work this program of recovery unless first we're free from the allergy. That must come first before we address the larger aspect of our disease, which is the mental obsession. So let's talk a little bit about these people that love us, these people that really see what the food is doing to us, but they don't understand what the food is doing for us, and they want to help us. So let's turn to page 20, and we're going to look at that third paragraph, because these are going to be the, the questions that people who love us ask us who don't understand what it means to suffer from this twofold illness. It says, how many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone, why can't he? So these are the people that say, well, why don't, Kim, why don't you just have a slice of pizza once a week? If you only have one slice, you're not going to get the consequences because that's how people define my compulsive overeating. My compulsive overeating was that I was 80 pounds overweight. I was a size 24. My consequences were that I was underweight and I was a size 2, losing my hair and not having a menstrual cycle. And my consequences were being the size I am now, an 8'10", binging and purging and over-exercising to the point I can't even walk on the weekends from the physical activity I'm doing. So they're saying if they can eliminate the calories, they think I'm going to be okay. Because why? Because they can do that. Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? You know, I don't know about you, but I, I did a lot of my binging in bathrooms, going to weddings, sticking things in pockets, going into the bathrooms, because I knew that the way I needed to eat, not wanted, the way I needed to eat was abnormal. That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. You know, I was even in an AA meeting, and I had added myself as a compulsive overeater, talking about being a hard drinker, because I am a hard drinker. And after the meeting, the guy said to me, you know, Ken, there's this great organic diet. You should try that. You should be okay. And I looked at him. I said, Joe, and this guy had 40 years in AA. I said, Joe, why don't you just drink natural wine? And he looked at me. He goes, oh, my God, is that what I just said to you? And I'm like, absolutely. So the people who don't understand, who even have an addiction, think if I go to Whole Foods and buy my food there, if I eat the diabetic form of candy, if I eat organic or all these different ways of manipulating the caloric content, that I'm going to be okay. You know, his willpower must be weak. I mean, that hurts. Because I wanted it. And they didn't understand how long 24 hours is when you're just abstinent only. They didn't understand the torture and the white-knuckling it and the mental obsession that was hounding me by just getting 24 hours. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I think he should stop for her sake. I mean, I heard that all the time. Like, Kim, I know you want a boyfriend. I know you want to go to the prom. If you just lose a little weight, you'd be okay. I told, the doctor told him if he ever drank again, it would kill him, but here he is, let up all over again. You know, at the age of 23, I went to the doctor because I wasn't feeling great. You know, I figured I had some unusual illness, and I, he left the room, and I looked at the chart, and he had me listed as morbidly obese. That was my diagnosis. And he came in, and he told me my cholesterol was frightening him, that he might have to put me on high blood pressure medication. The reason my knees were hurting was because of the weight I was carrying. The reason I was short of breath walking up and down the steps doing laundry in my parents' house was because of the weight. And he thought that would stop me. That's that whole Nancy Reagan just say no stuff, that scared straight stuff. That doesn't work for a compulsive overeater like me. In fact, that type of language makes me binge harder because I don't know how to deal with the fear, the guilt, and the shame that I feel when someone tells me to do that. 
says, these are now commonplace observations on drinkers, which we will hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different than ours. So once again, I have to understand I am a distinct entity. The way that I experience my binge foods is not the way other people do. I assume that everyone else gets that charge up that I get from that first bite, and they don't. So how are their reactions? Once again, big part of knowing who I am is knowing who I am not. So let's look at people whose reactions are different. We continue on page 20. It says moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have good reason, they can take it or leave it alone. You know, I think of my father. My father, before he goes on vacation, will weigh himself. And a big part of vacationing is, is indulging in the local cuisine. And my dad can eat. He's coming over today for Easter. And believe me, I prepare enough for three people for him. Because know what? He does that on Easter and no other day. So he will gain 10 pounds in 10 days on a vacation. But what happens is he comes home, he weighs himself, and he simply moderates or eliminates eating behaviors until he gets back to that weight, and then he goes back to eating the way he normally does. Is that your experience? If that's your experience, honestly, you don't need Overeaters Anonymous. Conventional diet programs work. If you reduce your calories, increase your content, increase your exercise, you will lose weight. Diets work. The problem is a compulsive overeater of my type can't do that for any extended period of time. So now let's look at someone who's, who's, not, who's a little bit more like us. It says, then we have a certain type of drink, hard drinker. He may have had the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few beers before his time. It's a sufficiently strong reason ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative. This man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. So this reminds me, honestly, of myself with drinking. I am the hard drinker. You know, I didn't have a drink till I went to college. I drank alcoholically for 10 years. I, um, at the age of 27, um, was less drunk than my friend at a bar, and I decided to drive her home, and I went the wrong way down a highway, and I almost killed us both. It scared the heck out of me. I've never drank again. That was a sufficient reason. Now, let me tell you, if I was caught drinking that night, or if I was caught many of the times I drank and drove, I would have been labeled an alcoholic. The court system would have sent me to AA. AA have told me to put the plug in the jug, don't drink, go to meetings, and I would have been able to do that. I, I don't need to work the steps when it comes to alcohol. I have a choice. And the sad thing is I would have tried to sponsor other alcoholics that way and I would have killed the real alcoholic who can't put the plug in the jug and who can't just go to meetings and stay sober happily. And the reason I want to stress that is we have to remember our third tradition says that anyone who wants to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous can be. It doesn't mean that all members of Overeaters Anonymous are compulsive overeaters. If you're hearing about someone who comes in and they can get a diet plan and they can work the tools and they are happy, they're not a compulsive overeater of the type that this step program is necessary. And they are welcome. And hopefully they will only sponsor other hard eaters like themselves. If you hear about somebody who eliminates foods while they're doing the steps 
and then can go back and they say they have yellow foods or they can moderately eat foods, and that is their truth, congratulations to them, but they're not the compulsive overeater of the type that I am. So being a compulsive overeater of the type that's specifically described in this book, I have to know who I am, and I have to find those people in the rooms who suffer like I do because I have to do what they do. And as a recovered woman, my job is to find those people who are compulsive overeaters of my type because my sobriety depends on carrying this specific message. My sobriety doesn't, doesn't, doesn't require me to, to take people's foods and, and check off what tools they did today. That might be part of the step process, but it's not the program of recovery. So another person like this is, I'm sure I know I've had binge buddies that ate like me, and they got a diagnosis of diabetes, and they stopped. And I would beat myself up. Why can't I stop like them? This book has taught me because the reason they can stop or moderate is because they're not the compulsive overeater of the type that I am. So it says here, but what about the real alcoholic? He may start up as a moderate drinker. He may even become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Once again, my experience, I really spent a lot of time trying to find out, we talk about that pickle to cucumber, when did I turn into that real compulsive overeater? Does that, if I figure that out that it happened in 1976 or 1983, does that change what I have to do today? Absolutely not. That's just an exercise in futility. The question isn't if you are a moderate eater, heavy eater, true compulsive overeater, and when that happens. The question is, if you are the real compulsive overeater, you're going to need a solution that's in this book. Okay, so let's turn to page 23, that first paragraph, because it says these observations. And what observations is that? that? Those are observations of the allergy, the idea that once I ingest certain substances, I cannot reasonably predict what I'm going to have. That's a biological mandate. That is my permanent disability. That's never going to change. Someone who's allergic to peanuts doesn't go through the mental exercise thinking, well, maybe when I turn 45, I won't be allergic to peanuts anymore. Maybe I can, maybe I can have peanuts in limited amounts, and maybe I have a threshold. No. If you have an allergy to peanuts and you need an EpiPen, you better have that EpiPen there. If you are a compulsive overeater of this type, you can never, ever, ever, ever have those foods again. It says, but these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink thereby setting a terrible cycle of motion in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So I think of it this way. Let's say that, you know, I have a really, really bad reaction to poison ivy. And I love to hike. I love being out, outdoors. So what I do is I know what poison ivy looks like. I wear all the protective gear that I need. I know how to avoid the poison ivy, and I can go into the woods, and I can see the sunshine and enjoy the sounds of the birds and the nature, and I have a wonderful time because my allergy to poison ivy is academic as long as I avoid it. But what happens if I'm in the middle of those woods, and all of a sudden my mind starts turning and goes, there's poison ivy, there's poison ivy. Oh, my God, there it is. Isn't it pretty? Look at the poison ivy over there. And I stop hearing the birds, and I stop seeing nature. And my mind tortures me and tortures me until finally I tear off all my clothes and I roll around in the poison ivy. And of course I'm going to have that reaction. So is my insanity in the, in the allergic reaction to the poison ivy or is my insanity in a mind that tells me 
and dominates my thoughts until all I have one option is to do is to roll around that poison ivy. So I do not need to come to Overeaters Anonymous even if I just have the allergy. Because all I need to do is eliminate those foods and have a rational conversation with somebody and say, don't eat those foods, and I don't need the steps. The reasons I need the steps is because of the mind, the mind that will always convince me to take that first drink. Because that first drink is always going to set up the allergy because of that biological mandate. So let's look at page 24. Let's look what it means to be a real compulsive overeater. And just so that we wouldn't miss it, Bill put it in squiggly writing. It says, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory and the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first strike. So, you know, I think if we go into a rehab, the first question they're going to ask us is, what's your drug of choice? Yet my book is specifically telling me I've lost the power of choice. So if I went into a rehab and they asked me that question, I could, I could truthfully say my drug of choice is alcohol because I drank alcoholically for 10 years and I made a choice not to do it. I can say that my choice is marijuana because I smoked marijuana in college and chose not to, not to smoke it anymore. I have chosen not to, to eat my binge foods over and over and over, but I've lost the ability to choose that. My willpower is non-existent in this area, even though in many areas I have a lot of willpower. And it says we are unable at certain times. So where I would get confused is, you know, at certain times, I would be at a wedding and I might be able to eat like a lady. And I remember the one wedding in the 90s, I could do it, and I forget the other 30 that I couldn't. I think to myself, yeah, there was that one time I had one slice of pizza. Why? Because there was only one slice of pizza left. But in my mind, I rationalized that as, look, I could control it. That is often the case when we say, well, you know what? Yes, I had my binge food, but I got back on track the next day. Because at certain times we can. And this is the way I think about it. You know, it's like playing Russian roulette. I have a gun. It has six chambers, one bullet in it, and I'm willing to spin that. Because there's a five and whatever they are, the one in six chance I'm I'm not going to get shot. But the insanity is as my disease progresses, I now have five bullets in the chamber. I've only got one shot and not being shot. And yet I'm willing to pull that trigger over and over and over. So I like to compare these um, paragraphs to what I've often heard in the rooms in AA and OA. Because I do attend AA meetings even though I'm not an alcoholic because I need the solution. You know, I'm told to play the tape through. I'm told to keep it green. I'm told to remember my last drink. I'm told to think the drink through. I'm incapable of doing that when it comes to my allergic foods. And if you can do that, once again, you might be the heavy eater. And my, this is my opinion, but I think that's what happened. I think when the, the rehab stuff started coming up and we had a lot of moderate, moderate, uh, moderate and heavy alcohol users who were sentenced to these rehabs, that's where these things came up, in my opinion. Because that worked for them. But it let out those people like us to suffer even longer. 
So let's continue with the book. It says, the almost certain consequences that follow even a glass of beer do not crowd into the minds to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. You know, that's when I get the idea. Well, you know, I'm going to have that pizza, but what I'm going to do is put Ajax on the, on the remaining part of the pizza, and that way I'm not going to... I'm not going to eat that pizza, but yet I will go back at 2 o'clock in the morning and eat that pizza. That's the rationale that says, oh, my God, that Reese's peanut butter cup, it's Valentine's Day. It's in the shape of a heart. I think it's going to be okay. That's the, that's the thinking that says to me, you know what, I just need to get the edge off. I'm not going to binge. I just need to get the edge off. I had a stressful day. That's the, that's the mindset that comes in. Well, it was organic. It's the diet version. So when let's look at the next paragraph where it tells us, now we talked about the questions that non-compulsive overeaters ask us. Let's look at the questions we ask ourselves. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time. So here's how. Organic, whole foods. I'm going to only eat in public because I don't binge in public. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us began to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar, and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how do I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop at the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? And when I hear pounding on the bar, for me personally, what I think of is pounding on the dashboard of my car. Because I live with a woman who was in Overeaters Anonymous, and I could not binge. So I did a lot of binging in my 20s in my car, thinking I'm going to buy that dozen donuts for the people at work, and then then being embarrassed because I get to work and there's nothing left. Or thinking, you know, I'm at a babysitting job and I'm putting the kids to bed on time, of course, because if I put the bed on time, then I have, I have their pantry to themselves. And I think I'm only going to have those three Oreos. And next thing you know, I'm two sleeves, three sleeves into it. and thinking, what's what the use? It's probably better just to eat them and throw out the bag by putting it in my car. I'm not going to throw it out in their trash. Because they, other than, because they probably won't remember they had the Oreos versus having the Oreos that's half eaten. That's what I say in my head. So when we get to this type of thinking, it says um, these stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop but cannot. And I have to tell you, I did lie a lot. But for the most part, I have to tell you, I wasn't lying. When I said, this is it, I'm done, January 1st. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic, and I'll tell you, this Lent was a big way I thought, well, you know, maybe the wrath of God will scare me enough, but if I give up chocolate for Lent, that's going to get me to stop. Now, sometimes I'd last till Easter, but most times I would cheat and feel guilty, the fact that I couldn't even keep it for the six weeks of Lent. So now we're going to transition over to the solution, because what we've heard so far, it's pretty depressing. Sounds pretty hopeless. But thank you. Thank you, God, there is a solution. And they hit it in a, very, in a chapter called There is a Solution. And just so we couldn't see it, in that first paragraph on page 25, they put it in squiggly writings. So it says, there is a solution. Almost none of us liked. I just want to stop there. Because honestly, I thought I had to like it. I don't know about you, but once again, my experience, I was told, you know what, Kim? Just get comfortable in your abstinence. Don't worry about those steps. If you don't want to do it, you know, just, just, sit, just sit in the room, wait till the miracle happens. That doesn't work. I'm never going to get, if I'm a real compulsive overeater, 
I'm not going to get comfortable in abstinence. And I don't need to like it. And they're letting me know that none of them liked it. So it's the actions I take, not how I feel while I'm taking those actions. So what is, none of us like the self-searching, step four, the leveling of our pride, steps five through seven, and the confession of shortcomings, steps eight and nine, which this process requires for a successful consummation. We often hear there's no requirements in Overeaters Anonymous. You know, and that's true, because the fellowship has no requirements. The third, the third um, tradition says that the only requirement is a, is a desire to stop eating. And, but that's for membership people. If you want successful consummation, if you want to not suffer from this illness anymore, there's a lot of requirements. There's a lot of musts. There's a lot of alls. There's a lot of nevers. And you don't have to like it. But the fact is that it works. And why did I start to believe that? Because we saw that it really worked in others. And I have to tell you, for me, that was all step two that was. I didn't, I didn't have a great relationship with God. Wasn't a big fan of his. Really wasn't a big fan of mine. But I believed it worked for these recovered people. And that was the conclusion of step two I needed to go on to step three. And we, becoming, we became to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we've been living it. That's step one. The conclusion that I'm hopeless and futile in the way that I've been living life. So when, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us to do but pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools. So that's what I need. I needed to see people who suffered like me who were no longer suffering. And let me tell you, I'm so grateful for Vision for You because if you listen to this meeting, you have, you have been approached by people in whom the problem had been solved. Not everyone on the line. No meeting is perfect, but there are many people on this line that whom the problem has been solved. But just listening to Vision for You is not going to help you recover. Why? Because it says we have to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools. And the tools are the steps. So it's only by me taking what you hear on Vision for You, taking what is written in this book, and taking those actions that's going to create that psychic change sufficient to bring about recovery. So let's drop down to that next paragraph. It says, the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences which had revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellow, and towards God's universe. So let me tell you, when I was in OA for 17 years, I was in a five-year relapse saying I was abstinent, putting on 50 pounds saying I was abstinent, and I broke my ankle and I was bedbound in the worst pain I was ever in my life and admitting for the first time that I had been in relapse for five years. And someone gave me a phone number of a meeting that talked about the solution. I heard people in whom the problem had been solved. And we were, I think, I, I, this might just be my skewed memory, but I feel like we were around this page when I started listening to this meeting. Um, and this really hit me. Deep and effective spiritual experiences. I had a lot of deep experiences in OA. Coming into a room and finding out I wasn't the only one that did with food what I did with food was a deep experience. Being around people that suffered like I did was a deep, deep spiritual experience. But I had to admit, if I'm 17 years in, five-year relapse, up 50 pounds, what I'm doing isn't effective. And if what I'm doing isn't effective, am I open up to a different way of looking at this work? And it says, which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. That gave me another clue why it wasn't effective. A revolution is huge. It's a total upturning. 
I would tweak stuff. I don't know about you. I just don't like pain. So I would do some stuff people asked me to do until the pain was gone, and then I'd go back and do whatever I wanted. I might be good to you people in the room of Overeaters Anonymous because you love me and I love you. Man, you get me out those other 23 hours, I am causing holy hell in my family, in my office, with my friends. So I was going to have to change everything. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. You know, my spiritual awakening, my conception of a power greater than myself has changed. Thank God it has changed drastically over these five years, and I hope it continues to change. But the word I'm really identifying in right now with is Creator. And the reason is I understand that Kim creates havoc. Kim creates confusion. I need a creator that's going to bring harmony and serenity. So that's kind of the way that I look at my power, my higher power. My powerlessness tells me I create crap, and I need a power to create something else. So here, this last paragraph on page 25 is when I got a little nervous, is when I realized, oh, crap, I was going to have to do these 12 steps as, a, as directed in this book. It says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were. So once again, do I believe that? Or do I believe that, you know what, you guys seem a little extreme. You know, I'm only going to eliminate 90% of my binge foods. I don't really need to do all that. You know, I, I don't need to do an entire fourth step. I don't need to do all my amends. I don't need to daily do 10, 11, and 12. I just need, you know, I just need to do a little bit because I'm not as bad as you guys. But if I believe I'm the alcoholic of the type described in this book, there is no middle-of-the-road solution. You know, I am beyond human aid, which means I'm, I'm beyond the fellowship supporting me, you know, on, on an ongoing basis. You know, I tried to stay sober on fear in the fellowship for many years, and it would work for periods of time. The fellowship is strong. But what about when I'm not around the fellowship? If I'm doing a 90 and 90, what happens on that 91st day when I don't go to a meeting? If my, if my um, recovery is based on phone calls, what happens when someone doesn't answer the phone? What happens when you are dependent on a meeting and that meeting closes? So I, those are all middle-of-the-road solutions. So why? We were in a position where life had become impossible. To me, that's hitting bottom. And it doesn't mean when I've gained 100 pounds or I throw up 30 times a day or I'm 30 pounds underweight. It has to do when life is becoming impossible. To me, it's more a spiritual, mental bottom when there's no other way out. And we passed through the region from which there is no return from human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other is to accept spiritual help. So this is where I got scared. I thought that intolerable situation was being in the food. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm binging my brains out. I can't even get out of the house. You know, of course, that's, that's, that's just intolerable. And someone explained to me, no, that's not the intolerable situation. The intolerable situation is being abstinent. You know, we often hear abstinence makes us feel better. Nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. I've got to tell you, abstinence didn't make me feel better. It made me feel anger better. It made me feel resentment better. It made me feel anxiety better. Abstinence is intolerable. You want me to be absent in the morning. You want me to be absent in the afternoon. You want me to be absent at night. I mean, when I heard people being back-to-back -back abstinence, I thought that was insane. How could 
anyone tolerate that? So if I'm in that situation where I am someone who has this mental obsession and I cannot get comfortable in my own damn skin, I have two alternatives. I have one, I'm going to pick up the food, blot out my consciousness, which is what the food did towards the end, just oblivion, feel nothing. Or I'm going to have to go for spiritual help, which is the 12 steps. And I have to tell you, I am always a student, and I found two new teachers in the Philadelphia area, and I'm attending their meeting every Wednesday. And the guy hit me over this. You know, I love this saying. I had written in front of my big book. The big book meets you where you are and elevates you from there which is why this book is a living, breathing document, in my opinion. It always hits me where I'm at, not where I was two years ago. Um, but that word alternative is different than choice. Alternative means one or the other. Choice means I can do it or I cannot do it. And the fact is, when I'm in that alternative situation, I don't have a choice. I have alternatives. Pick up the food or pick up the steps. Pick up the food or pick up the steps. And when I get that, and when that pain is enough, when I'm badly enough mangled, I am now willing to pick up the spiritual toolkit. And until I am, unfortunately, I'm probably going to go back to the other alternative. So now we're going to go into page 26 and 27. And this is about a gentleman, says an certain American businessman. And this is a gentleman, Roland Hazard. And I love Roland. I love Roland. Because he busts a lot of my delusions, and I need delusions busted. You have to remember, this was back during the 1920s and 30s that this book was written. And this was during the Great Depression. People, 25% unemployment rate, people were in bread lines, everybody's lives were devastated by the stock market crash of 29. But Roland was rich. He had old money, influential money, political money. And his parents loved him. And they wanted him to stop drinking, and they would do anything for him. They had him going to the best psychiatrist throughout the United States. He had access to everything, yet he could not stop drinking. And that's what I thought. My problem is I just don't have the right resources. Man, if I could have a personal trainer, if I could get Dolvet specifically from, from Biggest Loser, I, I could get thin and, and be okay. If I could have a personal chef, I would be okay. If I could get in, this is the 90s again, if I could get in that doctor's house, I would be fine. But the fact is, it didn't matter what resources I had access to or didn't have access to. I was going to relapse over and over. So these, these parents who loved Roland exhausted everything in the United States. And at the time, there were three top psychiatrists. Even when I was in college in the 80s, we studied these psychologists. There was Sigmund Freud, Alfred Adler, and Carl Jung. And they were able to get Carl Jung to see their son. And it wasn't like they said, Dr. Jung, can you please evaluate him? They had, they had their son go to Switzerland. Once again, during the Great Depression, people, they paid for him to go to Switzerland and live with Dr. Jung for a year. And Dr. Jung did all the psychology he could. And in that first paragraph on page, 60, on page 26 about two-thirds down. It says, above all, he, Roland, believed he had acquired such profound knowledge of the inner working of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. So that, to me, is all those self-help books that I had on my, on my drawer. If I could figure out when I was a compulsive overeater, how it happened, whose fault it was, 
I would be able to control this. And now that I'm, you know, I'm abstinent, I mean, well, now that I got down to that magical 14 in my mid-20s through bulimia, of course I'm going to be okay. But I would continue to eat. So he comes back to Dr. Dr. Young and says, help me, what do I do? So on 27, that second full paragraph, it says the doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. Once again, our larger aspect is our mind. I have never seen one single case recover where the state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with the climb. He said it's of no exception. Loophole. I'm always looking for the loophole myself. And I have to say that, you know, we often hear, we have to have a psychic change. We have to have a personality change. We have to have a spiritual awakening. We have to have a spiritual experience. What does that mean? My opinion, again, this next paragraph on 27, to me, is the perfect description of what the spiritual experience looks like. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this paragraph, and I'm going to say the word change next to every word that is a synonym of change. Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and then, once in a while, alcoholics have what are called vital spiritual experiences, change. To me, these occurrences are a phenomena, change. They'd appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change, and rearrangements, change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side, change. And a new set of conceptions, change, and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement, change, within you. So it sounds like we're going to have to change, right? So what I thought was, which, you know, society tells us, is if I have a problem, I need more. You know, if I have, you know, two, two donuts, of course, six donuts are going to be better. If I have one boyfriend, of course, four boyfriends are going to be better. If I make 50000 of course, 70000 is going to be better. More is better. So I did the same thing in Overeaters Anonymous the way I did in the world. If three meetings is good, then seven meetings is good. If three phone calls is good, then seven phone calls is good. I used to get, one of the reasons I got underweight is because I got competitive. I, I personally weigh and measure. And if someone was eating a half a cup of um, rice, I would eat a third a cup to show I was better. I'm always in competition with everybody. More, 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 more. Well, let me tell you, the step process is not about addition. It's about subtraction. So when it says ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding force of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, what does that mean? What does that step process do for us? So let's look at the step process. In four and five, we look at our, um, we look at our, our resentment, our fears, our sex conduct, and we cast them to one side. In six and seven, we identify those character defects which are blocking us, which are selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, fear, inconsiderate, and those are cast to one side. And then in 8 and 9, we look at the guilt, the shame, remorse we feel, and how we've treated others. And that is cast to one side. And once that is subtracted, because remember we were taught, well, we haven't been taught yet, but on page 55, it tells us God is deep down inside of us. So my, this process will uncover all the crap that we put between us and the power. And what happens? 
and then a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. So those are the principles of the steps. You know, honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, love, discipline, perseverance, spirituality, service. Because now that we're emptied of all that bad crap, these things can come up. And I'm just going to say one thing, and this is, um, I often hear people, we, I think we get too caught up, and this is my opinion again, on these principles being one word. And then we try to practice courage. We try to practice integrity. We try to practice love. If I could have done that, if a mere code of morals and philosophical shenanigans would have been enough, I would have done that a long time ago. You know, in religion, they tell us, here are the principles, do it. In spirituality, we're told, here are the principles, we can't do it. So how am I going to learn how to practice courage? By doing a step four. How am I going to learn how to practice humility? By doing step seven. So I am incapable of doing these principles until I work the steps. That's why the step process is so um, necessary. And I'm just going to finish up on page 28, that second paragraph. It says, we in turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of a drowning man. What seems at first to be a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. You know, my experience as a recovered sponsor is many, many people want to sponsor, but very few people want to be sponsored. Why is that? The desperation of a drowning man. They're drowning. They, want, they hear some strong personalities and vision for you, and they want that with everything in their, in their bones. And they'll call you and say, I want what you have. Okay, well, can you, I want you to call at this time. I have this assignment for you. We're going to get right in the book. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't know. I, I can't be doing that. I just, I just need to talk to you. I need, I need to talk about my feelings. Well, that is like someone drowning in the ocean, and I'm throwing them a life preserver, and they look at it and go, huh, I wish it was pink. I wish it was pink. Then I have a pink one. When you're drowning, you don't care what color the life preserver is. You know, I often hear people say, well, my sponsor fired me. You know, I have to tell you, I've, I've let, I have let people go. But for the most part, what happens is they can't keep the food down. And I'm instructed that we can't continue the work until the food is down. So we keep going back to step one, and they don't want to do the work. So think about that for those who think that, well, my sponsor fired me. Is it really that they fired you? Or is it that you weren't willing to do the work that they were asking you to do? Do you truly have the desperation of a drowning man? When someone asks you to do something, are you willing to do it or are you going to try to negotiate? Because you don't think you have to do that. You don't have the time. Your life isn't arranged that way. When I got to the point where I was willing to do anything is when I recovered. And this idea of a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. This was another prejudice I had to look at. I thought in step two, which is telling you what the solution is, a connection with the power, I thought I had to believe in a power, have a specific idea of a power. Personally, again, I spent a lot of time trying to tell God who he was by telling him what qualities he should and should not have. The flimsy read is just, do you believe you need a power? That's all it is. Does your powerlessness in these first four chapters of the book prove to you that you cannot do this on your own, that you're powerless? And step two is simply the conclusion, you need a power. That loving and powerful hand of God, that power, whatever it is for you, doesn't happen until step 11. 
So how do I get from that flimsy reed to that loving and powerful hand of God? How is that proven? It's proven through the steps. So if I step two, how do I get to step 11? I do steps three through 10. I'm not going to feel it at step three. I'm not going to feel it at step four. I'm not going to feel it at step five. I need to uncover, discover, discard those things through that inventory process so that I can feel that power. So all we're asking you right now in this chapter is do you believe that you're the compulsive overview of the type that this is that we're describing? And do you believe you need a power greater than yourself to solve your problem? And with that, I pass. Thank you so very much, Kim, for bringing to life Chapter 2. There is a solution. You brought it to life with such great clarity and thoroughness. We appreciate your experience, strength, and hope here on the line. Kim G's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now open the floor up for questions for Kim related to uh, what was presented this morning. You can ask a question by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Hi, good morning, Leah and Kim and everyone there. Can you hear me? Sure can. Hi, Shoshana. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much, Kim, for such clarity. I was wondering if you could please elaborate, like, some details of your personal experience as a sponsor, how sponsoring and being the sponsor helps the whole experience for your um, change, your spiritual change. Thanks, Shoshana. Um, Not only does it help, but it's necessary. You know, the first sentence in working with others, when it says that nothing will ensure immunity. Um, let me just open up the page too, because I. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. You know, I can't remember my powerlessness. You know, I have that mind that with sufficient force won't bring it in. But if I'm bringing someone through these chapters and I'm having to 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 bring up my stories to help them identify in. I'm in touch with my powerlessness on a daily basis. You know, once again, those teachers um, that I found in Philadelphia, one of the things he talked about is these promises. Every time I take a fifth step, I get to feel the fifth step promises all over again. Every time I help someone with a ninth step, I get to feel those ninth step promises all over again. So sponsoring is not a suggestion, according to the big book. Sponsorship is a requirement because all I have is a daily reprieve, and I'm not going to remember who I am unless I'm showing someone else who they are. Um, and that's one of the things that Bill really saw when, when he was, it talks about it in his story, is that you know, he understood that this spiritual experience was transitory, it was fleeting. And the only way that he was going to keep it was to recreate it in a daily basis. And the way that I personally do that is in step 10, by contact with recovered people so that my disease thinking doesn't come back. Step 11, by keeping that contact with a power open on a daily basis. And step 12, helping the still suffering compulsive overeater. Thanks for the question. Yes, thank you, Shoshana Kay. I have a question. Yes, and your name. Hi, this is Leah. Leah. Um, okay, one moment, one moment. Who else has a question this morning? Hold on, Leah. Anyone else? Hi, this is Cheryl from Maryland. I have a question. Okay, Cheryl. Good Anyone morning, else? Good morning, everyone. 
Okay, Leah, go go ahead. Hi, good morning. My name is Leah, and I'm a compulsive eater. And um, I guess Kim, you didn't hear me stand up and clap, but I did. Thank you so much. You you woke me up this morning. Um, I'm in the rooms a really long time, and um, thank God today I have 111 days working the program because I too was dieting with um, whatever your story. Here's my question. I'm starting to sponsor on the food up to a certain point that I can give back because it's important. And there are people who are doing what they want to do. And if I suggest A, B, and C, and they're not doing A, B, and C, I don't want my ego to be involved. Like I said, gee, I can't sponsor you. When is it ego? When is it not ego? How do you say let go? And how do you say to someone, gee, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I can't do this. Without being judged, you know, I'm trying to be supportive and I'm saying, well, do I let them fall and stay there anyway? Or do I say, gee, I can't do this because it is affecting my program too. So when is it God? When is it ego? And how do you know? Leah, where are you in the step work? You said you're helping people with food. Have you gone through all 12 steps yet? I'm working the fourth step now. I'm at the end of it. This is not my first one, my second one. And... um, I'm working that, the whole per- program. I've been in the rooms 42 years, but I, too, have had all the different things. Didn't need the big book, had the 12 steps, um, had this, didn't have that, my way, the highway, you know, had long-term abstinence, but just had the abstinence, you know, been that whole route. Um, okay. And that's where okay. I am for today. Okay. Now, I, this, this, this is contrary to what you'll hear in the, in the room, but I think it's consistent with the fellowship. We are told in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, we try to carry this message to, to the still suffering compulsive reader. I don't believe we should be sponsoring until we've had a spiritual awakening. I think the book is telling us. It tells us on page 164, we cannot transmit something we haven't got. I was in, a, in an area that we sponsored after 21 days and we didn't do any step work. So what am I transmitting? All I'm transmitting is a food plan because that's the only thing that I know. Okay. I, this, is where I get, this is where I get personal. Personally, I feel very strongly in Overeaters Anonymous, we have to go through all 12 steps because since each of us have individual binge foods, how can I be helpful to find someone, someone else's binge foods if I have, do not have neutrality around my own binge foods? Because, so I'm going to wind up being the food police because that's the only thing that I, I'm still, still, my head's still involved with the food. So that's why I find you have to have a spiritual awakening first so get through those steps, get through them quickly, and then go and sponsor. So I'm, but I'm going to read to you on page 95 where it tells us, um, in, in working with others, it says, if he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to only act as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more. So if someone just wants me to be their diet buddy, if someone wants me to be their life coach, you know, to help them not eat for, you know, want this one hour a day, that's not what I'm offering. And if that's what they want, I need to let them go. Now it says in, this, in the next paragraph, what if he is interested in my solution? What's my solution to 12 steps? If he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife, or his friends. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. So if I am pushing or prodding, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's what I said before. A lot of times people tell me they got fired. If someone calls me and I give them an assignment and they don't do the assignment, I say, call me back when you did the assignment. 
And they interpret that as me firing them. If they're not willing to do the work, I'm not going to push it. If you don't want to do the work, that's fine. But I'm here if you want to do the work. So if you don't do the work, call me when the work is done. So that's what I find. And I have to tell you, my, my personal experience, Leah, is I didn't have the ability to do that till I got through the steps. When you said, how can I tell if it's God or how can I tell if it's ego? I don't know that until after I've done four through nine to clear myself away so I can hear that power. Until I'm in 10 and 11, I have no idea if it's God or, or the ego because I'm still blocked from that power. So that's why I feel very strongly, and I think the book supports that. We have to get through the steps, have a spiritual awakening, and then we go out and help others. Doesn't mean we can't support people. Doesn't mean we don't share our experience. When you do step three, call newcomers. Tell them what that experience is like. When you do a four-step, call newcomers. Tell them what that experience is like. But you can't take someone through, through to an experience you haven't had yet. Does that make sense? Thank you so much. I was feeling guilty about not helping enough. You know, I was saying, gee, I'm not doing enough. I'm not helping enough. So now I can share what I've got. And thank you for clearing it. And I'm not going to officially do that until I get there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leah, for the question. A reminder to please mute once again. And now we'll have Cheryl with her question. Yes, Everybody good morning. can stay muted. Thank you, except for Cheryl. Thank you. Go ahead, Cheryl. Hey, good morning. Cheryl from Maryland. That's not me. I'm not sure. Okay. Can I ask everybody to please mute your line? I'm going to go ahead and clear the line, Cheryl. You'll need to press star one to to unmute once again. Kim, star one to unmute as well as Cheryl, please. I'm here. It's Kim. Great. Oh, okay. Good morning. Cheryl from Maryland. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Kim, great as always. Uh, my question is, um, I'm a, I you know, can have problems with put, keeping the food down. So I'm, a, you know, one of those real um, hard um, eaters and um, never been able, never been successful, even though I've tried several times um, since 20, 2000, 2011 um, in face-to-face um, -face fellowships and then started listening to Vision, had several um, sponsors here, but just keep trying. So now I'm on the fourth step picked up the food, um, talked to people, talked to Lowry, email, I emailed Lowry from time to time. He told me to, um, you know, stop, get clear, keep going. Some people say go back to step one, just like you just said. Some people say go back to step two. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> Everybody has their own idea of how you uh, work the steps. Um, so I'm just putting that question out there. And then the other question is like when, you know, like you said, you as a sponsor, you give instructions and, um, you know, you get instructions from your sponsor and sort of like I was doing and I did do all my instructions and just keep going. But what I was feeling in the process is that, you know, I had this, kept feeling this disconnect, like, I essentially felt like I was doing the uh, steps myself. I was working through my inventory and my steps myself. Um, so is there that is that the way it's supposed to go? And then when you get into steps 10, 11, and 12 and live there, you know, again, 
do you not have a sponsor or do you just build a network and work on your own and you just become a sponsor but you don't have a sponsor anymore? So things like that I'm just curious about because I've been working the steps. You know, we went over steps one, two, and three, and then I got in step four. Matter of fact, I got all the way up to my fear inventory, was about to go into sex conduct, picked up, and I just felt like I did it on my own, basically. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. You know, we're going to hear a lot of opinions in, in, in Overeaters Anonymous, and I really just try to say what, what is the book telling me. And, you know, I think about more about alcoholism, about Jim and Fred. You know, what happened when they picked up? These AA guys came back, and they went over step one. And that's what the book tells me. If I, if I, if I don't understand my powerlessness, I'm not going to get the rest of the work. So you see, I mean, my, this, and this is kind of conjecture on my part, but they say we didn't, we didn't see Jim for a while. We didn't see Frem for a while. So my, my feeling is probably he didn't want to do any work, so they left him alone. And then when he picked up, they didn't go back and say, Jim, where were you? We'll start from there. They went back to step one, and they went back and reviewed that. So I think the book is telling me we need to go back to, to step one. Now, I think this, once again, uh, I always like to say my opinion, I think one of the, the people we get discouraged is we think we have to go back step one in the same intensity that we did the first time. I just think you need to bust delusions. You need to go back to those chapters you know, what, 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 where are those lurking notions? Where are those reservations? Call recovered people. Get your questions answered. Where do you think you're different than this book? The closer I align myself with this book, the, um, the, the, the better my recovery is. You know, um, and just for time's sake, sure, I'm not going to ask you, but, you know, in the fourth step, it warns us if we don't get to step five, we're going to pick up. So it's very common for people to pick up in step four. How long are you staying in step four? Did you four? ask me a question? Okay. Well, how long have you been in step four? How long were you in step four? I mean, um, like a, maybe a good week, seven days, something uh-huh. like that. Well, that's good because I think part of the issue I see a lot of people are staying in step four for months. Of course you're going to pick up. You're staying in all the reasons you ate for an extended mm-hmm. period of time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, and this is, once again, my opinion, one of the things I do with my girls is when we start the instructions for four, we, give, I, we make an appointment for five. That way you know how long you have to be uncomfortable in that. Um, but I, I believe you have to go back to step four. Just, I'm going to answer briefly just for time about, you know, do you need to continue with the sponsor or whatever? I don't think there's a right answer. When you get into 10, 11, and 12, ask your higher power what you need. Ask, how, ask your higher power how you can be supported in this recovery. Maybe it means continuing with a sponsor on a daily basis. Maybe it means getting a network of people. Maybe it means talking to someone once a week. I personally have an, a, a group of women. We get together once a month, and we do 10 and 11. That has enriched my program over the last couple of years. So I don't think there's a right answer to that, but you're not going to know that until you get into 10, 11, and 12, get connected with the power, and then you can ask your higher power what you need to support your program. I wouldn't worry about what you're going to do in 10, 11, and 12 until you get there. Does that make sense? Yes. Hello? Thanks yep. for the question, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank, Thank you, Cheryl. You. Who else has a question this morning? Star one to unmute to identify yourself, please. If it's on your mind, I'm sure it's on the mind of many others. Good morning, I'm Betty in Oregon. Your name again? Michelle. Oregon, I have a question. I'm still missing the name of Oregon. 
Michelle, I, have a question too? I, I hear you, Michelle. I'm oh. not getting the other name, please. Mary Lee. Mary Lee. Okay, Mary Lee. Hold on one second. Anyone else? Yes, uh, I'd like to ask a question. Yes. My name is Hina R H E E N A okay, R in okay. Virginia. Okay, you hold tight there. Thanks. Thank All right, you. Mary Lee, go right ahead, please. Oh, good morning, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Could you elaborate on the word instructions? Um, I honestly have never been asked that question. I mean, to me, I'll just use an example. Let's say that we get, you get a recipe for um, strawberry shortcake that you love. And there's a list of a recipe and there's instructions there. And there's a very specific instructions in a specific order with specific ingredients. If we don't follow those specific ingredients in a specific order, we're not going to get the strawberry shortcake that we like so much. So I think of it that way. The more that I deviate from these instructions and try to put my opinion in there, the less likely I'm going to get the results that this book is giving me. So when I get the instructions for a strawberry shortcake and it says preheat the oven to 400, but I don't feel like waiting and I just stick this thing in there, I'm probably not going to get the shortcake I want. You know, if I'm told to do fresh strawberries, but I'm cheap, and I am cheap, I get the frozen ones because they're cheaper, I'm not going to get the strawberry shortcake I want. So if the book is telling me the food must be down, and I think, well, I'll just do the test with the food not being down, I don't have any right to get angry that I'm not getting the results I want. You know, if I'm being told, you know, these different instructions in here, um, I mean, for example, for me, six and seven, I thought the six and seven was me working on my defects. And when someone pointed out the specific instructions is I turn those defects over to God, I don't work on them. I watch for them in step 10, but I don't work on them. Wow, that made a lot of sense why my defects were still ruling my life because I was trying to manage my defects through my own self-will. But when I looked at the directions where it says turn them over to God and to watch for them, I'll tell you, my defects started to float away. Does that help? I kind of feel like I was fluffing that one there. Absolutely, um, especially the six and seven. That's that's right. It, it's almost like it was divinely inspired. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mary Lee. Michelle, your turn. Please add the first letter of your last name as well, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Michelle. Yes. Hi. Good morning. Um, I have a question about. You know how, like, if some pe- most people in OA, you know, say they refrain from sugar and flour, um, what if a person or people, you know, maybe have those things occasionally? What does that mean? Does that mean they're not a compulsive overeater or they're a heavy eater or what? I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, t- it totally makes sense. I... Th- we have to identify those foods that specifically create the phenomenon of craving in us. And that's a biological function. So we cannot have them occasionally. So I'm just going to give some experience. Um, I, I went into a meeting that had a definition of abstinence. And it was no sugar, no flour, no caffeine, no wheat. And I said, okay, because I was desperate. And sugar and flour are, actually flour is my main, my main allergic ingredient specifically for me. Um, 
but I'm not allergic to caffeine and I'm not allergic to wheat. So the fact that later on I could have, you know, soy sauce or I could have hot tea with caffeine in it doesn't mean that I can occasionally have caffeine and be okay. It meant I was refraining from something that I don't have an allergy to. Whatever I have an allergy to, I cannot have at all or I'm going to have an allergic reaction. So I just want to differentiate it. I had a sponsee that um, we were talking about and she said that pasta sometimes was a problem. So I said to her, well, how do you prepare the pasta? And she's like, well, I, you know, I noticed when I have it with marinara sauce, I'm fine. I can have my portion I don't want anymore. She's like, but when I have it with Alfredo sauce, you know, I just go to town. I can't stop. So I said to her, I said, well, maybe then it's not the pasta. Maybe it's the fat because the Alfredo sauce is simply fat. So here she was refraining from flour because people were telling her to refrain from sugar and flour when flour wasn't her problem. It was fat. So by someone telling you what your binge foods are instead of doing the investigation, it's very confusing because she, she was thinking she could moderately eat flour. So why, is that, why could she do that? It was because flour wasn't her issue. So someone, so that's, that's just, I want to, that's for the real compulsive overeater. If someone is a moderate eater or a heavy eater, yeah, they can stop or moderate with sufficient reason. That is someone who's not a compulsive overeater. So if somebody does that and they don't have a problem occasionally having something, yeah, they're not a compulsive overeater. But on the other end, I think a lot of times because overeaters, you know, not just OA, we have 17 food fellowships, and I'm sure a lot of people on, on this meeting are even in OA, where food fellowships tell you what your abstinence is. So a lot of people, in my opinion, again, are abstaining from things they don't need to, and they're probably eating stuff they shouldn't be eating because they never looked at their own individual allergy. Does that make sense, Michelle? Yes, and just one more quick thing. Is that also kind of the same, like let's say, for instance, I might go out to a diner and have breakfast, and I might have the toast there, and I'm fine, but I cannot bring a loaf of bread in my house and think I'm going to spread that out for whatever, even if it's in the freezer. Like what does what is that? You know how some people say they can eat certain things outside, but they cannot eat it in their house or maybe vice versa? Or is that... Yeah, that's, that's a dangerous game because our allergy isn't geographically situated. You know, that goes back to page 24, at certain times. You know, I mean, that's, that to me is I'm not going to binge in public, so I'm going to contain myself to that one piece of bread because I'm in public. But when I'm in private, I can't control myself. That's a dangerous game to play. If you can't eat bread, if you can't eat whatever the ingredients are in bread, you can't eat bread. It's just that at certain times, we get the delusion that we can. And I, and I find that often people will say, well, when I'm in public, I can have that. At a restaurant, I can have that. Because maybe we do have the willpower at certain times to refrain from that. But if we are a compulsive overeater of the type in here and the disease continues to progress, there's not, there's not going to be a certain time anymore. It's, never, it's not going to be sufficient. So if you find you have an allergic reaction to any substance, it's not, it's not geographical. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have a reaction because you're having it in a public setting or on a birthday or on a trip in Hawaii or whatever that is for you. We have to understand that we are, if we are allergic, 100% abstinence. Absolute abstinence is necessary. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle.
Hina R. Your turn. Thank you, uh, and good morning. I am um, uh, new to A Vision for You, though I've been in food recovery for six years uh, in two other programs, so I'm familiar with different aspects of it. Um, but what I've come to realize is that I really have not either identified my foods, especially in the way that you were just describing um, is it Leah? I'm sorry. I'm not good with remembering names. Anyway. Uh, I am the Kim. moderator. Yeah. Kim is the speaker, yes. Kim, thank you, Kim. Um, so that's something I'm interested in learning more about generally. But my question at the moment is, when, um, what, how to deal with being in situations where um, I'm, I'm part of a group that's about seven or eight people, and I would say... Um, I would say like six, five of them, five of them are, are obese. And part of what we do together is we eat. And they've known me for years, and not one person has ever asked me about, seriously, about food recovery. And um, I wonder whether um, being in this group, uh, how to decide whether being in this group is harmful or not harmful to me. It has other other benefits. It's a fellowship group, a spiritual fellowship group. I sometimes feel like I'm an alcoholic who's meeting some friends in a bar and I'm drinking, you know, uh, sparkling water with lime while they're all drinking alcohol. And what am I doing, you know? Is, it, is, is this, am I risking, I, I don't know exactly what the question is, but could you comment on my, on what, what must, you know, what, what is the dilemma for, this dilemma for me? Tina, where are you in the step work? I I have done steps one through four in the past, but I'm going to be starting again now. Okay. You know, in, in working well, actually, with others... I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. The truth is I did I did go through the 12 steps with with someone in, in a very vigorous but inten- intensive but very concentrated way, so I did do it that way as well. But, I, but are you newly abstinent? The way you said that, it sounded like you were newly abstinent. Um, I've, I've re- I, had, um, I had a relapse uh, okay. um, recently, so I'm starting again. Yeah. Okay. The big book talks about the fact that we can go anywhere on this earth if we are recovered. This is assuming we are in fit, fit spiritual condition. It talks about this on the bottom of 100 into 101. If we are not spiritually fit, if we are in the middle of the step work, we need to protect our abstinence at all costs, at all costs. So we might need to refrain from going to certain places while we're going through the work. And that's why that the book is actually trying to create a crisis. It's trying to create this anxiety that if we don't get through this work, we're going to pick up again, which is true. So that's why the pace of the big book accelerates more that we get into, into the work. Once we have that spiritual awakening, let me tell you that I can go anywhere on this earth and be around my binge food. It's Easter today. I'm going to be cooking my binge foods for my family. And I am fine and I am okay. You know, we often talk about that, and this is just my, my prejudice, that tradition, you know, um, we are a program of attraction rather than promotion. And I used to think, well, if I got to a size two and I – dye my hair blonde and blue eyes. Of course I'm a program of attraction. I'm, I'm skinny. I'm pretty. What I think that means is, is how can I be a program of attraction if I'm afraid to go out into the world? 
you know, I had six years of back-to-back accidents. I didn't go into a restaurant. I was terrified. I was afraid the waiters would poison me. I couldn't be around people who ate my binge foods. I couldn't go to, I would go to family events only when they weren't eating. How can I be a program of attraction if, if people say, well, why the hell would I want what she has? She can't be around people. So what we do is we get this spiritual awakening, and then I can go anywhere on this earth, and the, the lightness, the joy, yeah, I'm a normal body size, but it's my lightness, my joy, my ability to enjoy life that people are attracted to. And then if somebody who's around me is obese, I, they might offer me something, and I can say, you know, I don't have that, because I find once I pick that up, I can't stop. And if someone doesn't have my problem, that will go right over their head. But if they do, they might come back to me two or three days later and say, what did you mean by that? Mm -hmm. I had that same problem. But first we have to have that spiritual awakening. So we need to protect ourselves during that process. If we pick up, once again, I had to go back to that page 25 that I talked about. I had been through the steps through other material, which once again, my experience did not work for me. I had some relief, but never freedom. So I had to get to that point on page 25 where it says, we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. Admit, if I kept picking up, whatever I was doing in my step work was not working because it wasn't effective. And I had to humble myself after being the inner group chair and on the Region 7 board and going to World Service Business Conference to say, I don't know what I'm doing. And these people in whom the problem had been solved have something that I want, and let me find out what they're doing. And just the second thing, um, I don't know if you listened to our meeting live, um, but in the second hour, the last 10 minutes, um, 10 of 9 Eastern Standard Time, people will get on and they will offer to take people through the doctor's opinion. And people say, why did they not offer to sponsor and just the doctor's opinion? Just because of the question that you asked. We have to know what our alcoholic foods are. We have to know what we're abstaining from. So I would you know, stay on, call someone and take you through the doctor's opinion, look for the Sunday recordings that take people through the doctor's opinion. I think Leah announced a doctor's opinion panel, um, presentation is going to be coming up shortly in the vision for you. Find out what your alcoholic foods are so that your mind can be clear enough and be willing to ask for a new experience with these steps, understanding that what you've done in the past hasn't been effective. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you so much. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Hina. Who else has Maureen? a question? Hi, this is Maureen. Maureen. Maureen M. Who else? Kaya. Vivian M. Kaya. Vivian. Or Toby. Sandra M. Sandra. Sandra. And there was one other that I missed. Toby. Laura. Laura, your last initial? G. And then Toby. Gotcha, Toby. Toby K. Toby K. All right. Let's start with Maureen M., and then it'll be Kaya. Go ahead, Maureen. Good morning, uh, visionaries. I'm really grateful that you're here on Easter Sunday morning. Um, and, Kim, I love listening to you every morning on uh, on the daily uh, recording. Um, your no-nonsense approach appeals to me. I love it. I am... Uh, I'm experiencing what I believe to be a miracle because I've been working with a sponsor who has moved me quickly uh, through the steps and not in a, you know, frenzied 
kind of way, but more in a higher powered kind of way, just um, my willingness and my... Maureen, excuse me, I'm sorry, just in the interest of time, could you just uh, ask your question, please? Thank you. Oh, yes, uh, sure. Um, Is that possible, to have a spiritual awakening so quickly? Um, Thank you. Where are you, Maureen, in the steps? Because you're going through quickly, but where are you? I am on 8 and 9. I am currently practicing actively 8 and 9. Okay, so let's look at what the book tells us, okay? So when Evie came to Bill, Bill says to him that it had been two months and the results were self-evident. So so Evie went through the steps in about two months. Um, Bill goes into the hospital and he's there for nine days and he has that white light experience. So he has that spiritual awakening after going through the steps in nine days. When Bill meets Bob, it's on Mother's Day, 1935, which was May 11th, and June 10th, which is the birthday of AA, was one month. So he took one month to go through the steps. Hmm. Um, If we look at the spiritual experience in the back of the book on page 567, it says at the bottom, fourth line up from the bottom, what often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. So it's telling us there just a few a few months. What I want to what I want to say is that a spiritual awakening as a re, as a result of the steps. You're you're on the on the finish line, girl. Step at eight and nine. You're going to start getting into ten and eleven. Ten is when we're recovered. What happens throughout that process is spiritual. What I call spirit. This is my opinion again. Spiritual awarenesses. We get an awareness when we're powerless. So that's freedom to know we're powerless. We get an awareness that there's a power out there. We get this awareness at step three. Wow, I'm not, I'm not going to be running the show anymore. As we look at our resentments, our fears, our sense, we're getting awarenesses. If we stop at step two, if we stop at step three, if we stop in step four, that's not a spiritual awakening and that's not going to be lasting. And that's why people who do the steps slowly, in my opinion, pick up because they're not using that momentum. So, yes, you can have it in a short period of time, but remember it's as a result of the steps, meaning we have to complete all the steps to have that spiritual awakening sufficient to bring about recovery. So you're on the goal. You're right at the goal line, girl. Keep going. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Maureen. Kaya, your turn. Thank you so much. I wanted to know, does letting go of the resentment mean forgiveness, or can you let go of the resentment and still not be forgiving? Are they synonymous in programs? Um, Once again, according to the big book, forgiveness is not a part of, of the step process. The only time it mentions forgiveness is when we're asking forgiveness from other people for what we've done. It's not about us forgiving, you know, being for, um, it's not about us forgiving other people. Um, once again, my opinion, that let go, let God, that, I used to do that all the time. I can't do that. That's the reason I need to work the steps. I don't have the ability to let go of resentment. But what I have is a skill set that I learned in 4 through 9 that I put into practical application in 10 and 11 that allows me to turn that resentment over to God, and I can, I, I can, I can be free of it. 
So I, I always try to warn people about these little sayings that, you know, if I could do these little sayings, I don't need to work the steps. So I don't let go, let God. What I do is I work these steps, which gives me a skill set to be able to do that. And forgiveness is powerful work. I think that's one of the things, and this is, once again, my opinion in here, but I think a lot of times we try to bring non-step work into our step work. Forgiveness work is, is very powerful, but it has nothing to do with the step process at all. The only time forgiveness is mentioned is when we ask other people to forgive us for the harms that we have done them in step nine. It talks nothing about us um, forgiving other people for what they did. Thank you very much, Kaya. Vivian, your turn. Hi, good morning. This is Vivian M. Thank you so much, Kim, for this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, so my question is, when sponsees question or resist assignments because they've done it differently before, if they you know, had been in a way for years prior to coming to a vision, um, what I say, and I'm just trying to clarify this myself, but this is the process that someone who went before me told me to do as the big book states. So uh, with that, do I also, if I'm still not that clear on it, do I consult other recovered people in my network for suggestions as to their experience? Or does this represent sometimes unwillingness for the sponsors to do the work or what? And where's the line? Sometimes I have difficulty determining the line there. Thanks for the question, Vivian. I, once we're in 10, 11, and 12, we should be going to God first or whatever that power is for us to get quiet. The question I always use for myself is, how can I be useful to this person? That's what I try to filter everything through. So I don't think there is a right or wrong answer to your question. Um, I'm just going to go back to the book again. On page 90, there's a sentence there that says, um, ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. So once again, quit for good means are you willing to put the food down 100%, not one day at a time, are you done? Um, and then go to any extreme to do so. I think anyone who's been to more than two 12-step programs is going to say yes to that until you ask them to do something specifically. So I just feel you need to get quiet with your higher power. Ask your higher power how you can be useful in sponsoring, and if that's assignments or, you know, assigning tools to do on a daily basis, how you want to handle the food. Let the sponsee know what you require, because we're allowed to have requirements. And then have them agree to that. And if they don't do what you agree to, then you tell them, like, listen, this is, only, this is what has worked for me. And this is the only thing I have to offer. If you don't want to do it this way, you're more than welcome to find another sponsor. And that's the humility. I can only carry, and this is, once again, my, my humility is the 12 and 12 for OA in the workbook did not work for me. I have to have the humility. If someone wants me to use those books to say, you know what, I cannot transmit something I do not have. That, that work did not work for me. You need to find a sponsor that, that, that those books worked for. So if someone has a different way of working it, encourage them to find someone that wants to do it that way but be clear on what you're offering. And if they don't want what you offer, then move on to the next person. Got it, got it. Okay, because I've, I've spoken to a couple of people who I, you know, recovered people, I would always call, you know, to, to see what. And sometimes, you know, you get different opinions, certainly, uh, from their experience. And 
uh, sometimes it's extremely helpful, but other times it gets a little confusing. But yeah, it's just it's like you know, it's pretty obvious if I go back to God and ask about that. And, and living, living, God, God's going to use us. You have specific talents, and you have a specific message. So God's going to bring people to you that you can help. Trust that. You don't need to emulate your sponsor. Wink, wink. You don't need to emulate other recovered people. You need to ask God into how you, Vivian, can help carry the message of this big book. You know, get quiet with how Vivian does it. Don't try to worry about what other people are doing. Got it. Got it. Great. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kim. Thank you. Thanks, Vivian. Toby Kay, you're up. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is Toby. Um, I don't know how to let go of my character defects and ask God to take it from me. I don't know what that means. I mean, I I think I do, but obviously I don't because I fall into those character defects again and again and again. Where are you in your step work, Toby? Uh, five. I got great news for you. You're not there yet. You don't, the character defects are handled in six and seven. If you're in five, you know, this is why I think it's so important that we do the work in order and specifically, because if you had asked me in step four, Kim, what are your good qualities? I would have said my self-sufficiency, my independence, my ability to pull myself up on my bootstraps. And I find out in step five, those are some of my greatest liabilities. And then in six and seven, I find out they're objectionable. And I ask God to remove them, and I ask God to remove all those things, good or bad, because I recognize now I don't know what's good or bad. So I, what I found for myself is when I tried to get free of my defects, I was trying to run the show. If I'm dishonest, I'm going to work on honesty. That's, that's a no-brainer. If I could have done that, I would have done that before I came into OA. I, know, I knew to be honest. I didn't, have, I didn't have not to be dishonest. I need God in that. So that only happens in steps six and seven. I just want to share another. These teachers in Philly are fabulous. One of the things that it says in step seven, um, and I'm sorry, no time's going to be bad, but it says, I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellow. So I'm not even asking God to remove all my defects. I'm asking him to remove what stands in the way of me being useful. So what I find for myself, Toby, is God's going to use my defects. I'm sure I'm pissing off a lot of people on the line right now because I'm very professorial. I'm very no-nonsense. I wish I could be more like Leia. I wish I could be more soft. But I, that's, not, that's not who I am right now. So I'm going to ask God to use my professorialness, use my no-nonsense mentality. And he's going to use that for people that need the message said that way. So it's not only that God's going to take them away, but God's going to use my defects. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at it? But I don't need to be in control. I don't need to worry about the time frame is taken away. I just ask God in, good or bad, use me because I want to be helpful, not just to OA, but to my family and to my job and to my friends. But recognize that's not going to be happening until you get to six and seven. So stay in the step that you're at, dig into that step, and then let the steps take you to the next one. With that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Toby. Sandra M. Hi. Thanks, Kim. Uh, well, you didn't address like uh, 
what if a person doesn't have an allergy to certain substances, but they have behaviors like they just want to eat everything and they want to go from one thing to the next, but they don't have a specific food that they're not allergic that they're allergic to. Uh, and I know in the, some of the OA literature it says uh, food behaviors. So I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Okay, I have, I have a couple thoughts on that. One is that if you don't have a specific allergen, specific foods, you're not a compulsive overeater because that's one of the requirements. The other thing is for myself is that I was so into my disease and so searching for anything to quell the loud noises in my head, which was my disease, that I was delusional to think I was allergic to everything. And that's why I needed someone to go to the doctor's opinion for me so I could mention those foods that really called to me, my heroin I call it, and to, to ferret out what are those ingredients in there so that I could, so I could define my abstinence. And when the Ovaries Anonymous talks about behaviors, but it doesn't say or, it says and. So there are certain behaviors that create the phenomenon craving within myself too. But if someone truly doesn't have an allergy, then they're not a compulsive overeater of the type. And it's so funny because we come into OA and we don't want anyone to tell us we're a compulsive overeater. And then if we say something and say, oh, maybe you're not, you can't tell me I'm not a compulsive overeater. So if that is your truth, that you really don't have an allergy, you don't, you're not a compulsive overeater. But, but I, I would say nine, nine times out of ten, what happens is when we're binging on everything, we don't have the mindset to differentiate the truth from the false. Our alcoholic life is the only normal one. And if we get with the recovered person and we get them to take us to the doctor's opinion, they're going to help us to identify those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors that create the phenomenon of craving so we can get a definition of our abstinence. Does that make sense? It does. I just said I've experienced the, the losing the weight and then binging again. And, you know, I, the emotion, the, I've worked through the steps and I feel I'm recovered. I, but I really feel that the, uh, without the steps, I wouldn't be able to recover, even though according to the definition that you're saying, I'm not a compulsive overeater. I feel I am because... Uh, Without the steps, I just kept going back and back and back. And, and if that, maybe that is your truth, but according to the big book, that if you don't have the allergy, you're not a compulsive overeater. And if, are you saying that you work the steps and you still haven't, you have not been, or you've gone back occasionally working the steps? No, I, I'm recovered now. Uh, but without the steps, I was not able to put it down for any length of time, more than 15 months, and it was always difficult. It was like a white knuckle, like you call it. But well, for, time, work for, time, for time's sake, if you want to call me individually, we can talk. But I'm just talking strictly from the big book. If we don't have an allergy, then we don't have the twofold illness. But Thank a lot you. of times I think a lot of times is people, people are, don't understand what an allergy means. They don't understand how to identify those foods, and that's why the doctor's opinion is so critical. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra M., and our final question this morning comes from Laura G. Thanks, Leigh. Am I being heard? You sure are. Great. Thanks. Um, good morning, Kim. Um, I had. I, I just want. I'll, I'm going to touch. Whoa. <laughs> I'm going to say a couple things, and then and then it'll help hopefully with the question. So you said that um, you know, some people want when you call and you ask for help. 
you say that people say they want what you have. And and I understand that. Um, the attraction, I get that. And um, my experience is the spiritual awakening and awareness is this thing really slow and steady. And I'm starting to recognize what you explained to Vivian and Toby about you know, what is coming through, what God has in store for me with what I can bring to the program. And I, the question is about or pertains to, like, the effect. And I recognize in trying to work with others and having worked with others that sometimes that effect in just doing that, um, I think convincing self or trying to convince yourself that you need what somebody else has or that, that, you know, that can bring on the effect. So I was wondering if you could just talk about, I'm coming to learn that higher power is the only effect I want to operate off of and have the trust and confidence in that. And if you could just talk about how the, what the effect means to you. I know it contains and connects to spiritual awakening awarenesses and the other words you use, but they all bring on an effect of security, in my opinion, as to what the food used to do, whatever your addiction was. And I hope that was clear. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. I think I understand what you're saying. The, the way that I think about it is I was taught in the doctor's opinion that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So I have to identify those, food, those foods that create the effect, and I have to abstain from them 100%. Just because I'm abstaining doesn't mean I don't need an effect. So I'm always going to be an effect person. So I work through these steps and I get the effect from working the steps. The way that I think about it when I hear I'm living in 10, 11, and 12 is I get an effect from step 10 working with recovered people to keep that inventory process fresh so that I don't get any kind of buildup of emotions, buildup of resentments, fears, my conduct and relationships. I get an effect from step 11, which is three things, the morning routine and evening routine and pausing throughout the day, and I get an effect from a connection with that power. And for me, the when I felt recovered, in all honesty, was only in step 12. I get an effect from helping someone else through this work. I get an effect watching someone get lit up the way that I get lit up from this work. And if I continue to get that effect from 10, 11, and 12, I'm not going to get need to get that effect from the food. But since I am an effect person, and this is how I see people who are recovered go into relapse, if I stop sponsoring, I'm not getting an effect from that. If I stop an 11, step 11 practice, I'm not getting an effect from that. If I stop that step 10 process, I'm not getting an effect from that. Well, my, the way my brain's wired, I'm going to default back to the only other thing I've ever gotten an effect from, which is the food. So I hope that answers your question. I think that's what you were asking. Perfectly. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura G. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, as always, Kim, we appreciate your service on A Vision for You. Thank you so much for carrying the message. I'm going to close the way we always close here, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. 
see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.